Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, the English speaking podcast going through Swedish history one step at a time. Yes, that was Orsa and I am Chris and this is episode 79. The last two episodes cover the period when King Eric was busy off wandering around Europe and borrowing money for a trip to Jerusalem whilst Queen Philippa held the fort back home. This time we'll continue the story from when Eric returns and see what happens next. But first, as always, a Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, this time we have Gjåpåpumpen. So literally to walk on or walk to the pump, as in like a well where you pump up water. Great. And it means to fail. Why is that a failure? Or lose. I have no idea of the history or kind of reasoning behind this phrase. Uh, so go to the pump or on the pump means to lose or to fail. It's often used in um, kind of financial contexts. So you could say he invested all his money in the Bitcoin trend, but but there he went to the pump. So he went to the pump. Could you say, Would you say Bitcoin went to the pump? Yeah, could do. It's something. It doesn't have to be a person. No, okay. Cool. That was a quick and uh, not very well-researched one for you this time. We we did it relatively quickly, so... Uh, yeah. Let us know if you know the reason why this phrase exists. Yeah, or if you have a similar phrase in your language, uh, a phrase that means to fail or to lose. Well, you found it in Polish, right? Yeah, but I've done so much bad Polish pronunciation in this podcast that I feel like I'm not even going to go there, uh, let alone uh, understand what it means. Let's continue the journey through Swedish history and catch up with the adventures of the king who has just been out on his long journey. So Erik is now back in Sweden, finding out what Philippa had gotten up to whilst he had been in Poland trying to sort out his problems with Holstein and on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, he found out that Philippa had made some pretty sweeping monetary reforms, introducing new coins in the Kalmar Union that would be tied to the value of the coins in Lübeck in Germany. Eric also finds out, if he hadn't already, that all his hard work of getting the Holy Roman Empire to intervene on his behalf in the war with Holstein and declare Schleswig to be Danish had meant nothing. His enemies had written to the Pope, who, despite Philippa's complaints, had annulled the verdict made by Sigismund, meaning the war was back on. We actually tweeted about this a week or so ago, saying that there might have actually been a crossover with the Tatalis Ranki and Roman Emperors podcast when Eric was down in Poland and Hungary, and that was actually the case. Uh, there's a picture uh, from 1424, or, you know, an engraving or whatever it is, of when King Eric met with Sigismund in Buda, now half of Budapest, the capital of Hungary, um, but also Emperor. John VIII Paleologus from the Byzantine Empire, so or the Roman Empire. So yeah, Eric actually met the Roman Emperor, so there was a crossover with Titanus Rankium. Oh, history is all interconnected. Exactly. So I just wanted to mention that because it's really fun. Yeah, definitely. 
But there's now a lot to deal with for the royal couple. It's now the year 1426 and things are about to heat up in the war with Holstein. Let's quickly remind ourselves of the key players on the Holstein side, on the enemy side, shall we? Leading the fight is Henrik IV, Count of Holstein, who claims to also be Duke of Schleswig. That's because King Olaf and Margareta had made his father, Gerhard, the Duke of Schleswig, and when Gerhard died in 1404, his son, Henrik, claimed that title. This was the beginning of the whole problem, as Margareta and Olaf claimed that the title belonged to Denmark and was going to go back to them, and it wasn't the kind of title that was inherited. In their eyes, the title had returned to the Danish crown when Gerhard died, but of course, Henrik wanted that title for himself. Or at least his family did, because he was just seven years old when his father died, and maybe didn't care so much. Yeah, like we said, this was the main reason for the war, which began 18 years previously, back in 1408. Henrik also has two younger brothers in this story, Adolf and another Gerhardt. They're all in this fight together, uh, there's no infighting in the family, and they're all keen to ensure that their family keeps hold of the territory of Schleswig. So now back to the story. Eric returns to the Kalmar Union and sets about tearing up Philippa's monetary reforms. But he still needed money, and so to get this money, he decides to take advantage of the Kalmar Union's geographic position and starts levying customs on ships sailing through the Urusan Strait, or the Sound, at a fee of one English noble per vessel. Eric started building fortifications as well to help enforce these new fees. Understandably, the neighbours aren't happy. But what can Eric do about that? It's their fault for not listening to him to begin with. He is now determined to solve the problem once and for all, and when summer comes round, he launches a great offensive. By July, Schleswig Town, that famous football team that we all like, Schleswig Town is surrounded on land and sea, and new fortresses are built. Duke Henrik asks the Hansa for help, so dire is the situation. They don't give him any military aid, but do once again try and act as negotiators. This, of course, comes to nothing. What does help them is the arrival of the Vitaly brothers. Yeah, those guys are back. The pirates are back. They managed to prevent Danish ships from resupplying their ground forces and also help Henrik to deliver new supplies to the besieged town. It's not good for Denmark despite the siege, and it only gets worse. So bad that Eric has to give up the siege and retreat north. Uh, this is summarising that story very, very quickly. Like we said, uh, we're not going to go into this war in as much detail as we could because there is so much detail on it. Uh, but by October, the Hansa towns of Lübeck, Hamburg, Stralsund, Wismar, Rostock and Lüneburg have declared war on Eric, placing him in a desperate situation. They're annoyed at the constant war that's been going on in their neighbourhood, but even more annoyed at Eric's plan to tax all these trade ships passing by Denmark and Scorn. So this is a really huge thing. Now, the Hansa have declared war, or at least you know, many of their leading cities have declared war on the Kalmar Union. 
Union, and they planned to launch a naval attack with Henrik's younger brother Gerhardt in command of this combined fleet. But unfortunately for them, these plans are postponed because of bad weather. Erik can't be happier at this development. The Hans have now joined in, starting what is known as the Dano-Hanseatic War. Erik is also disappointed at the situation in his own army. Only about 300 Swedes are fighting for Denmark, essentially, now, showing that they are probably a bit annoyed at having to fight and die for what is essentially just a Danish problem. It's a border conflict in the southern part of the Kalmar Union, so it's Denmark. And they are also having to pay crippling taxes to fund the war. The opinion in Sweden is so bad that Erik needs to send Philippa to Sweden to ask them to get their act together and commit properly to the course. It's interesting that it's Philippa who does this, and it can be seen as yet another example of how she had a better relationship with Sweden and was trusted with important political decisions there. Yeah, she's Eric's helper when it comes to dealing with the angry Swedes. And whilst in Sweden, it's possible, perhaps even likely, that Philippa met with one Swedish nobleman in particular. This is a man called Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson. So yeah, his dad was called Engelbrecht. And someone we'll return to more in the next episode. He's minor nobility, definitely not one of the big hitters at this point, and comes with German family heritage. He's actually first mentioned in preserved records from this year, where he signed a letter with his noble seal. His German heritage means he likely came from a family that moved to Sweden, perhaps during the reign of Albert of Mecklenburg, but perhaps even earlier. Engelbrecht is likely to be in his mid-30s at this point, and because of his standing, he would have been forced to contribute to Erik's war against the Hansa. That would be either by fighting himself or sending people in his place. There is no record that he fought in the war, but he is the type of person Philippa would be urging to contribute more, and we know from later on that it is likely that he had military experience. His day-to-day life, though, was as a man, a merchant or businessman with letters of privilege allowing them to work in the mountains, producing iron ore and other materials associated with places such as the Great Copper Mountain Mine. This means he would have a network of contacts around the country, but wasn't the kind of nobleman to just sit as the head of a grand estate, ruling out of a castle and sitting on the National Council. He was a sort of working nobleman, business nobleman in the mining industry. Yeah, it's these letters of privilege that are really worth a lot. And so if you have these for a while, you essentially become working class nobility. Yeah. And for more information on what those kinds of people would have been up to as a Bergsman, um, check out episode 50, all about the Great Copper Mountain Mine. Yes. But yes, Philippa is busy trying to get the Swedes to contribute more to the war because the royal couple know that the Hansa are going to be trying something big. After all, they did build that big fleet and get it assembled. It was just bad weather that put it off for the moment. And eventually that something big happens at the start of the next year. So by the end of March, the Hanseatic fleet is ready to sail to Denmark. In April, it meets up with the Holstein fleet and the remnants of the Vitali brothers. 
The plan is to head to Urasund and capture the Danish castles and forts on the coast there and capture trading vessels and other things they can get their hands on. They manage to plunder a few Danish towns, but soon Duke Henrik changes his mind and orders the fleet to take Flensburg. The town is soon surrounded on land and sea. Despite this, the town's commander, Knight and Hövedsmann, Danish for mayor or governor, was actually feeling quite confident. His name was Morten Jensen Gustring, who was leading the defense alongside his brother-in-law, who was the local bishop. <laughs> Good teamwork there. Bishops have changed since the 1400s. Yeah, but remember when the Novgorod bishop or archbishop, can't remember which one, was given command of the castle, the uh, Nurtaboy castle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> after the Swedes had destroyed it, he was given a whole castle to look after. So yeah, it's a... Uh, Bishops have changed, as you yeah, say. Yeah, I've, I've only met a bishop once, but he, he was distinctly non-fighty. Was he the dancing bishop from, like, Nigeria you met in Paris? No, 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 he wasn't a bishop. He was just a priest. <laughs> uh, good dancer. No, this was a Swedish bishop who visited London to visit the Swedish congregation there. And yeah, he had coffee and cake. He'd done some shopping for new bishop clothes oh, in yeah, London. Yeah, because like the Europe's best bishop hat shop is in London or yep. something. So he'd gotten himself a new hat. He he was lovely, but I can't see him commanding the defense of a small Danish town. Not yet. <laughs> Let's see what this bishop got up to, though. Because uh, the brothers knew the enemy needed to build or bring over heavy artillery. So they have time to plan this defense. They wouldn't just charge the gates and try and smash it in. After they were ready with their defense, they had nothing much else to do. So they stand on the walls and start mocking the Hansa troops. On the evening between the 28th and 29th of May, the commander of the troops from Hamburg apparently gets extremely offended by whatever the Danes were shouting. Probably something along the lines of your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries or whatever that is in Danish. Something like din mor war ein hamster und din far lugte of elderberg. Yeah. If uh, the defenders were from Monty Python and if Monty Python was Danish, that's what they would have said. Not sure if that sounds better in Danish or English. No, one or the other. But yes, this leader from Hamburg was a town councillor from Hamburg too. And he wasn't keeping good control of his men though, as they were apparently very drunk. And so at 1am in the morning, these Hamburg troops decided enough is enough and the insults are, are too annoying. And they just start charging at the castle to begin the attack. No, nobody has planned this. They're probably also encouraged by the fact that the Hansa towns in this war had decided that each army would get to keep what they can take. So uh, there isn't any communal sharing of the loot. So if you go in and take the town first, you just get to keep everything for yourself. The sounds of battle wake up Duke Henrik, who is outraged that his officers didn't wait for him, and throws himself into the fight. He's, yeah, probably also keen to make sure that A, the battle doesn't turn into a disaster, but B, that Hamburg doesn't get all the glory. He's a bit too keen, though, 
Against all sensible advice, Henrik rushes to the front of the attacking force. He starts climbing over the wall on a ladder, but when he reaches the top, he's hit smack bang in the chest by a Danish javelin, and he dies that night. Yeah, I mean, probably not the best thing for a general to be doing, charging right at the front of the battle and climbing over the walls. <laughs> um, yeah, you can see why uh, his brothers in particular would be quite annoyed at his decision-making there. This does mean, however, though, that his brother Adolf is in charge of Holstein now and the claimant to the duchy, but he's also in charge of the army. And it's clear when morning comes that this impromptu attack had completely failed. And it had failed so bad that despite Adolf's pleas, the forces from Lübeck and Hamburg decide to go home. The Hamburg council is presumably a bit glum at having caused this entire disaster. Oops, and rightly so. Adolf begs the men to stay, but they do leave the battlefield, and this meant that the armies from every Hansa town go home too. Holstein have nowhere near enough men to take on the town by themselves, so the siege is over. Oh, and a side note, that Hamburg councillor who started it all, he's executed for incompetence and or treason when he gets home by being decapitated. Yeah, I mean, not surprising there. So now Adolf is in charge of Holstein and he actually shares this power with his brother Gerhard. This change in leadership gives Emmerich a bit of a momentum boost and he receives reinforcements from Sweden and Norway. And to cut a very long story short, he also gets help from the Dutch who are at war with the Hansa right now too. Um, the Dutch have been really annoyed with the Hansa for loads of trading um, arguments and reasons. Uh, but yeah, um, no time to cover that now unfortunately. This combined fleet, rumoured to even have some English ships in it too, managed to block off the Urson to the Hansa fleets and not just tax them on the way through, just stop them coming in altogether. Yeah, this is a big deal. The Hansa has to do something as there's a big convoy of Hansa ships waiting to come through the strait that they need to stop. At the moment, they're going to sail right into the Danish trap. So the Hansa attack with their fleet outside Copenhagen in July. The sides are equally matched when it comes to numbers, but the Kalmar Union fleet is clearly better in battle. Hamburg's ships run aground early and the tide, pun intended, starts to turn. The Hansa are defeated and a last-ditch attempt to send a message through the blockade to their merchant ships is unsuccessful. Yes, and so the Hansa cargo ships, 64 of them, completely full with valuable cargo, sail right into the arms of the Kalmar Union blockade and Eric takes the spoils. This is a huge victory and means that the Kalmar Union really does control the sea. It also helps that Eric gets a load of extra cash. It takes until the next year for the Hansa to counterattack. This time they managed to amass a huge fleet of 240 ships and 12,000 men, according to some chronicles and a number highly debated by historians, and wannabe Duke Gerhard is in command, and they set their sights directly on Copenhagen. This leads to two battles in quick succession. The first attack reaches the outskirts of the city, and Philippa is left to command the defences, 
or at least boost the morale of the defenders. She tells the Danish knights to fight with great courage against the invaders. They are right to be worried as the Germans are using a new tactic, floating batteries, basically barges with cannons on them. They definitely don't count as warships as they can't really sail. They are what they are called, floating batteries. The Germans, however, don't really manage to surround the harbour properly, and when the Danish and Swedish navies head out to counterattack, the Germans retreat. But they're back just a few months later, and this time they have even more men and ships. But Copenhagen have also reinforced their walls. The two sides fire at each other with their artillery and cannons, and the Germans have even bought up land artillery, which they've landed on the shore nearby. This might even be the first artillery battle in Nordic history. In the end, a lot of shots are fired, but the effect is limited. The Hansa do manage to sink a lot of Danish ships by the entrance to the port, between 24 and 38, depending on the sources, so this is a lot of damage done, but doesn't really directly threaten the city itself. After this battle, the Hansa set off to pillage both the island of Bornholm and Landskrona in Skåne. The Hansa then want to head to Öland, but Gerhard wants to capture Flensburg. Just to be different, the Vitali brothers want to go and raid Bergen, which they do. Because what have we established so far in this podcast? Pirates gonna pirate. In a compromise, Gerhard and the Hansa decide to go to the German coast, but en route they lose each other in a storm. No decisions are reached when they reunite, and the fleet is disbanded in August. At the same time, as the Hansa fleet is disbanded, a Swedish one arrives in the same waters. So Erik is now in control of the seas again. It's really backwards and forwards, this one. Uh, one reason why we're, we're just summarising it relatively quickly, because there's so much stuff going on, it's, uh, it's hard to keep track. And this is the point where the Hansa start to worry about the safety of their own towns, and they're now bitter that their large and expensive naval campaigns have come to nothing. There's a lot of fighting on land too, but we don't really have the time to cover that. This all essentially means that Eric's route to Flensburg, which he still holds, is now cut off by enemy forces. As we enter 1429, we see a few more naval battles of varying consequence, the Danes attack Stralsund and burn some ships, but they can't get into the city. The Germans fight back and defeat the Danish fleet a little while later outside Stralsund and end up capturing around 300 Danes. It's also the end of an era up in Norway when the Vitali brothers attack Bergen once again. It's very small scale, but ends up being an important change in how the Nordic countries defend themselves at sea. This time the Vitali brothers have only gotten seven ships, and the Norwegians are prepared to defend themselves. The main part of the Norwegian defence is the Leedungsflotta, an armada of small ships, not unlike Viking ships, that the Norwegians are obliged to provide to the king in order for him to defend his country. 
Yeah, it's like a reserve force of locals. They're required to have these ships ready. And initially, the Norwegians are successful and manage to capture a Vitaly ship. But the larger Vitaly pirates' ships soon gather in a united attack and the entire Norwegian fleet is either sunk or runs away. This is called the Last Battle of Ledum ships, as they're quite clearly outclassed by proper navies now. Bergen is plundered once more and the Vitaly brothers leave with a sizable loot. Elsewhere, this is also the year that we see Bear's men Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsen get married. He likely marries the daughter of a Swedish nobleman from Vestmanland. This family owned several farms in the area and in Upland, so this is a step towards a property portfolio and the political power that comes with it for Engelbrecht. But yes, much more on him next time, as we promised. Yes, because there are a few more things to talk about before then. First, the sound juice or the Öresund customs are introduced. This is when Erik formally introduces the tax that every ship has to pay to pass through the Öresund Strait. Up until now, it's been a bit ad hoc, but now it's written down for all to see. This has come to be known as one of Erik's most influential acts, as, bit of a spoiler here, this lasts until... 1857. It's a long time. Yeah, it will be a key part of Denmark's income for centuries to come. It also shows you that the Hansa aren't successful in getting rid of it. It meant that all ships wishing to enter or leave the Baltic Sea, passing through the Sound, had to pay the Danish king. To help enforce his demands, Erik started to build Krugen, a powerful fortress at the narrowest point of the Sound. This is a huge deal, and of course people aren't going to be happy about this. One other thing that a lot of people aren't going to be happy about is in 1430, because this is when Queen Philippa dies at the age of just 35, and she's buried in Vardstena Abbey. This is a really sad moment, and the couple still don't have any children yet, and they obviously won't after this point. So Eric's Pomeranian cousin Bogislav really is going to have to be his heir, at least in his eyes. Remember when he came up with the idea a few years earlier, a lot of people got angry about it and started writing angry letters to him saying you can't bring in a foreigner, but um, he's still now determined to bring in his cousin after him, now that his wife has died without them having any heirs. Looking back, Philippa seemed to be very effective, both as a regent and as a go-between when it came to everything that happened in Sweden. If Margareta hadn't ruled the Kalmar Union, Philippa might have been much more revered as a strong woman ruler, without Margareta's dominant rule to compare to. So she's sort of in the shadow of one of the greatest female rulers of arguably European history, so uh, maybe Philippa doesn't always get the attention she deserves. Equally, she might not have received the same opportunities if she hadn't come just after someone like Marietta. We'll never really know. But one thing we do know is that Erik was probably disappointed 
or sad, not just because his wife had died, but because this would likely mean more difficulties with Norway and Sweden, as he had very much started to neglect these realms and focus on Denmark and its war with Holstein. It was also a time for the Swedish noblemen to realise the work that Philippa had been doing to keep them quiet, so to speak. When they looked around their country, they realised that now pretty much all Swedish castle counties, except for those in Finland, have foreign commanders or bailiffs running them, mainly Danes and Germans. As we've seen, they're not all on their best behaviour, to say the least. Exactly. This is a real turning point for Sweden when they sit up and realise, oh, Philip has been uh, doing this great work and almost sort of distracting us and making us uh, calm down a bit. And now they realise that there's actually a lot of problems going on. And appointing foreign people to all these roles and positions went against Eric's oath that he swore on becoming king. But it was also the result of a conscious political plan he was laying out. It wasn't by accident. He knew what he was doing and this was how he wanted to rule. The Swedes had been kept in check, partly because of Eric's own reforms, but also because of the work done by Philippa to keep them happy. And that security blanket, so to speak, was now well and truly gone. But there is good news from Europe, however. The Hansa also take this as a moment to start thinking, and they feel that the war has been dragging on with constant expensive naval battles that really bring no real victors. So that means they succumb to more pressure from the Holy Roman Empire to come to the table. And this time the peace negotiations are just between the Hansa and Eric, so uh, Holstein are ignored, it's just the Hansa who want out. Things seem to be going as normal, with no real breakthrough, when suddenly the representative from Rostock stands up and says he'll accept the Kalmar Union's terms. Erik is shocked this isn't how it normally happens, but he quickly accepts the offer. Stralsund soon follows and makes peace with Erik, so things are looking up. But right when they are looking up, Holstein and the remaining Hansa towns in the coalition launch one final attack on Schleswig, and this time they mean business. Their goal is, once again, the town of Flensburg. They also have some help and inside knowledge, as one of the nobles from the town who had been exiled by Eric has joined this attacking force. He suggests they attack on Palm Sunday, which is almost exactly when this episode is going to be released. No, it? it's when we record it. Oh, is Today it? is Today Palm is Sunday. Palm... Oh, okay, yeah. So this is my bad knowledge of but Christian Easter days. Obviously, Palm Sunday, like Easter, moves around in the calendar, so we are not sure that it was on the same day then as it is now but it would have been around this time of year yeah so yeah, wow that's a good coincidence isn't it and uh yeah so they, he suggests they attack on palm sunday because that's when most people are going to be in church a few people he knew back in the town make sure that the town gates aren't properly locked either so this is proper treachery and their plan works the treacherous nobleman rushes into the town with a small force of men and quickly start taking control before the rest of the army joins in the Danish defenders are thrown into disarray, but their commanders, the same two brothers-in-law from earlier, led by Morten Jansen Gersting and his bishop relative, flee to the nearby castle and lead the defence there with their usual bravery. 
They had been taken by surprise by the treachery of some of the townspeople, but this will end up being a proper castle siege. Around 600 Danish soldiers squeeze into the castle, and this means that it has nowhere near enough food to last for a very long siege, but they are determined to fight. Like always, the Holsteiners managed to cut off the castle from land, but a sea route is still open. A Danish commander manages to sail in uh, in May to bring some much-needed supplies, but it won't be enough to last forever. Erik realizes he needs a large fleet to bring in the required supplies or push out the Germans and relieve his garrison. But the Hansa know this, and they rally their own fleet and stop Erik from arriving. Yeah, wow, lots of sea battles. In the castle, things start to go from bad to worse. Supplies are so low that the defenders started to think that dog and horse were tasting like chicken steak. Hunger then turned to starvation, and in September, after being promised safe passage back to Denmark, the Danish soldiers surrender the castle and start their despondent walk home. The news of the fall of Flensburg means that Erik loses all hope of running the Holsteiners out of Schleswig, and even he realises that he needs to agree to serious peace talks. After all, he has essentially completely lost now. These peace talks move along quickly, and a ceasefire is reached that will take force immediately and last for six years. This time, it's going to happen. Eric knows that everything is over and his long, long war is coming to an end. He has lost, and it's all a bit sudden, really. Indeed, this is a seminal moment. We'll discuss the terms of the proper treaty that is to come out of this once we reach it, but this won't be for another few years, so we'll discuss that in a future episode. But yes, this is it. The war that started during the reign of Margareta has come to an end, and Denmark is well and truly lost. There is no other way to spin it. Not only has Erik lost the war, but he's lost face and he's lost the good relations he's had with the two other kingdoms in the Kalmar Union. Norway has essentially been ignored and Sweden has lost troops in battle, had foreign lords imposed on their important castles, religious figures pushed into key roles and tax and goods taken to pay for a gigantic strategic failure that isn't even geographically relevant to Sweden. This is going to set up what happens next in Eric's reign, as some Swedes finally snap. We don't have time for this today, so we'll just have to go on two quick tangents before we leave you. You've probably noticed in this episode in particular, there's been a lot more combat happening on sea, with even floating cannons being brought into battle by the Germans. So we thought we'd take some time now to cover two parts of life at sea. The first being archery at sea, which is very cool. And the second, what was trading life like for your average Hansa merchant trying to sail through all this shenanigans? Yeah, that sounds like two excellent tangents to end the episode on. Shall we start with the archery? I think we should. And for this section, we have to thank 
Henrik Armstad and Abigail Christine Parks for their great essay, Maritime Military Archery, Bowmen on European Warships, 1000 to 1600. Uh, do check it out if you can. It's really, really fun. But yes, like we said, there's been a lot of naval combat recently, but we're still quite a few decades away from broadsides of cannons blasting away between rival vessels. We've seen the Germans bringing in artillery on barges, and even some ships by now have a few cannons mounted on the front of them, although we can't see any Scandinavian examples of those. One great example, though, is just over the road, and it's the English Carrack, the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Ghost. A Carrack is a three or four mast ocean going ship, so pretty big, and the Holy Ghost was about 30 meters long. In a brilliant link to our story, she was commissioned by Henry V of England, Queen Philippa's brother. This ship had seven cannons when it was launched in November 1415, and she was still in service up until the year Eric goes on his trip to Europe and Jerusalem. So it, this is a contemporary vessel in our story. Despite the ship actually having cannons, these were small breech loaders, so they were loaded at the back of the cannon rather than through the barrel, and they were intended as anti-personnel weapons. They wouldn't sink an enemy ship, but they were designed to prevent others from boarding you and uh, yeah, shooting away at other men on other ships rather than the ship itself. Even though this cannon was the height of technology, they couldn't yet be compared to the efficiency of the longbow when it came to range, accuracy, and especially firing rate. In fact, a well-trained longbowman could shoot an arrow every five to six seconds. That's five times faster than a crossbowman and much, much faster than a cannon. So the longbowman and the archer were ruling the waves at the time of our story. It won't be until the late 1400s when the Portuguese and the Venetians start using cannons to attack other ships with, and we'll have to wait until the 1500s for this to really take off. So if you can't blow an enemy vessel up, that meant that naval combat in the early 1400s was about getting close to the enemy, grappling onto their ship and boarding them. You would have had archers and crossbowmen on board, but this was to aid this boarding. They weren't aimed at sinking the enemy ship. But let's look at the archers especially and what they were armed with and how they fought at sea. And let's continue or start off really with a full quote from that great article. Bowmen may in fact have been more effective at sea than on land. Additionally, archery had a profound impact on naval combat and ship design, with stern and forecastles being added originally as platforms for bowmen. The bow was the original ship artillery. In some cases, archers were also employed by civilians as hired guns protecting merchant ships. You've probably seen the pictures of old-school medieval vessels with the large castles on either end, and these were designed for the archers to give them a bit of height and, yeah, turn them into artillery. Historian Mike Lodes continues, Naval archers were an extremely important element in the defence forces of the nation. As well as needing to be able to rake the decks of enemy ships from a distance, naval archers also had to be able to shoot at targets high in the rigging. When ships grapple together, men in the crow's nest, so archers, javelin men, and men with large rocks, would assail the enemy decks with missiles. Those on the decks sought to pick off those aloft. 
So there were plenty of targets, and it wasn't just on the military ships that these archers served. Merchant vessels used them as well, and after hearing about the Vitaly brothers, who would blame them? You needed your own protection force. The most interesting, and frankly coolest part, is that they had a whole bunch of specialist arrows and equipment to make things difficult for the enemy. Yeah, if you ever played any uh, RPGs or other computer games set in the past or in fantasy settings, you usually have some sort of fire arrow or fancy upgrade for your arrows, and that's certainly the case in history too. We can see how archers at sea in the medieval times used special arrows like fire arrows, arrows equipped with lime bags, pig's bladders filled with oil, and even arrows shaped to cut through ropes and sails. There's a lot of different arrows there, some more easy to understand than others. What is a lime bag? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad that this was described in the article. So lime bags or pots were bags or pots filled with ground quicklime. Giles of Rome, medieval philosopher from the second half of the 1200s, wrote about what happened next. These are to be thrown from aloft into the enemy's ships. When the pots are thrown with force and shatter on impact, the powder rises in the air and enters the enemy's eyes and irritates them so greatly that they're nearly blinded they cannot see. And yeah, the lime bags were just basically just the same. They were hooked on the end of an arrow and shot into the enemy ship and then all the, the dust comes out and blinds people. So they're basically medieval smoke grenades or, or tear gas. Oh, that's extraordinary. The oil-filled pig bladders fulfilled a similar task. Alternatively, pig bladders filled with oil could be secured over the head of an arrow in the same way as a lime bag. Once the arrows hit the enemy ship, the oil would leak out onto the deck and make them slippery. Yeah, wow, that's really cool. Uh, so it's not just about shooting the enemy, it's about making life difficult for them in many other ways. This is really complicated and professionalised warfare, and as we've seen from the grumblings in Sweden, also very expensive. We've seen all parties in the war actually so far get frustrated at expensive losses, and that's partly because of the increase in costly naval warfare. Now that we know what they're shooting at and what they're shooting, what was life like for the merchant vessels unlucky enough to be caught up in this fighting? Um, to do that, I think we should look at the daily life of a Hansa merchant. Yeah, this is really interesting. In Dirk Mayer's great book, Seafarers, Merchants and Pirates in the Middle Ages, which we've mentioned at least once previously, he goes on a lengthy explanation, or one might say descriptive tangent, about what the life would be like for a young man joining a Hansa merchant's adventure. So we'll follow that structure and let you know a bit about what these people would have been up to when they weren't busy meddling in the politics of the states around the Baltic Sea. As we know, the Hanseatic League was a complicated, always shifting entity, but it had started to settle down a bit recently. We've become familiar with some of the most important names, Lübeck, Stralsund, Hamburg, Rostock, and many others. Their councillors meet and decide on common policy with the aim of making everything more profitable for their traders and merchants. They've become strong, politically invested actors around the Baltic Sea and are now getting involved in entire wars as themselves to push their economic policies forward. 
but a lot of that actual trade was done by independent local merchants who owned contours, the trade offices run by these merchants that were spread all around the trade network. So let's look at one of these regular traders. The first thing to note is that a lot of the time things weren't paid for directly, but made a note of and paid for later by another merchant passing by or when the original one returns. For example, there's a trader called Vico von Geldersen whose records have survived. We see one note which says... Gert, the rosary maker, citizen of Lübeck, owes 28 Lübeck mark for a pipe of oil to be paid at mid-Lent. Okay, wow, that's a proper IOU then. And mid-Lent was right around now as well, just like with the Palm Sunday. And the accounts don't say which which mid-Lent, so maybe it was he had to pay him back by now in uh, 2023. <laughs> yeah, maybe this is when it runs out. And we can see from his records that this Gelderson mainly traded in cloth from the Netherlands, but also brought and sold timber, iron, food, live cattle, pigs and horses, and even spices and luxury goods like silk and gold inlaid belts. Oh, wow, quite a few different things. I want a gold belt. You can tell this merchant was clearly a top merchant, as one entry in his record is for the purchase of entire ships. And one is even built to order, especially for him. Yeah, that's really impressive. Not many people, even today, order ships directly from the manufacturer. And we can see through his records that Galderson's life status rose along with the fortunes of his home base of Hamburg in the 1380s. He really was an example of a man who then made it. He was a Hamburg councillor from 1387 to his death in 1389, and because of that would have taken part in the Hanseatic assemblies on behalf of Hamburg. But what about everyday life? Well, perhaps Galderson joined a trading office as an apprentice. In his own books, there were many different handwriting styles, indicating it wasn't just him, he had staff working for him, as any successful merchant would have done. Indeed, once the merchants reached a certain level of power and wealth, they wouldn't even travel abroad themselves, but send their crews, apprentices and employees across the seas and making profit for him as the main trader back home. So a young apprentice, then, is the first step of the ladder. Meyer explains more of what would be expected of them. A young apprentice would learn to keep the books and note down the receipts of payment and installments. Lead seals attached to the goods had to be examined, the size of barrels checked with a measuring device, the marking of goods with symbols to indicate ownership, origin and quality played an important role in the trade. From the 14th century, lead seals were used as a quality mark for cloth. And that isn't all. Some goods had little tax tags attached to them, and of course there were scales and weights and rods to ensure nobody was cheating. When it came to foodstuffs, we know they had special 
axes to cut off the heads of dried fish to save space in the barrels as well. That's a great idea. Nobody wants the icky heads. <laughs> <laughs> and once at sea, there were rules to be followed there too. The Hamburg Sea Law of around 1270 was called the Order Book, the Book of Judgments, and it had a lot to say about chartering and the way ships were run. For example, crews received a weekly wage. Advance pay had to be paid back in full if the sailor became unfit for work, such as when they were seasick or got injured. Only the captain would have their own cabin, although every so often the helmsman might get one too on the bigger ships or cogs. The rest of the crew slept on the deck. Nothing stayed dried, as you can imagine, certainly not the crew. If grain was being carried, the hold would be given an extra lining of wood, as, of course, that's more valuable and important to keep dry than the crew. Once a ship docks, the merchant waiting to receive the goods or his clerks would come on board. Once they were happy, the cargo was taken ashore and delivered to the merchant's own contour. Heavy goods would have been lifted up with a heavy crane powered by a treadmill, like a big giant hamster wheel for humans, or by less sophisticated equipment. Everything was regulated. There were fixed tariffs regulating the wage the crane men could demand. So you knew in advance what you'd be paying people. Yeah, it's all designed to make things easy and smooth as possible. You would think that travelling around the Baltic would make things confusing for all the sailors and merchants, but a few expected barriers were actually easier to overcome than you might think. Almost all trade, for example, was conducted in Low German, uh, a bit closer to Dutch than modern German. Other languages were around too, of course, especially around in Skorna, for example, but it was in everyone's benefit to speak a bit of German, as this was the main trade language at the time. Once everything was sorted out and delivered, fresh goods were brought on board from another contour and sorted out in the hold of the cog. The crew would then hang out with other traders in the harbour and meet other crews until it was time to head off once more or head home. It was all one giant circle and crews could expect to be at sea for long periods of time before getting back home. It's a life that all in all hasn't actually changed that much since then. If uh, listening to all the stories from my dad uh, about life at sea in the 1900s and early 2000s have any truth to them. Yeah, you can see how the technology has changed, but not the spirit of the work. And with that, we'll end those uh, brief tangents, uh, not worthy of an entire episode this time, but ones that we hope you enjoyed. The seas have always been really important to our story, but they're only going to increase in importance as we head forward, and soon the pirates will even have cannons. So this is properly uh, what people come to imagine of pirates. Yeah, they will indeed. And uh, because of the geographical location of Sweden and having a long coastline, especially to the Baltic Sea, like Chris said, the sea has always been and will remain an important part of our history. So with that, it's time to say thank you for listening and thank you for everyone getting in touch recently, be it about various Swedish April Fool's jokes people spotted earlier this month or feedback about appearance on presidencies to talk about Attorney General Caesar A. Rodney. 
Yeah, that was so much fun. Uh, now it's been a few weeks since the episode was released. I guess we can give a few minor spoilers away. Uh, first, Caesar wrote one of the be two best resignation letters in history, and he also succeeded a man called Outer Bridge Horsey as senator for Delaware. And if those two facts and names don't tempt you, then uh, perhaps nothing will. Thanks again to Jerry for asking us on, and thanks to everyone else for getting in touch. If you want to leave us a review wherever you listen to us, that would be great too. We're nearly up to a hundred reviews on iTunes, so maybe yours will be lucky number 100. Yep, maybe you will be. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, check us out on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for A Flatback History of Sweden. And if you do that on Google, you'll find our website too. Or you can just email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And with that, we'll see you next time with some disturbing updates from medieval Sweden as people start to get a bit more fed up with King Eric. Indeed. So see you then. Bye-bye. Hey, Dor.